Good morning, Four Corners Church. It's a blessing to be together again, and I am thankful to the Lord for uh, bringing, me, bringing me back here this Sunday to be together with you all for corporate worship. If you would, go and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. You'll have to bear with me today. I, I still have that cough from two weeks ago, so it's uh, our two-year-old daughter brought, brought the plague home. Uh, a couple of you guys, you know how that goes. I don't know where they pick these things up at. I was telling someone recently, it might have been a piece of gum under the table at a restaurant or something, but uh, they bring these things home and then they just linger. So <clears throat> it is lingering. Uh, so I hope you'll be patient with me today. I want to thank Trey for uh, bringing God's word to us last week. Another rich sermon from Philippians. Uh, what an incredible letter and uh, he's done such a great job just unpacking its riches. Uh, today we, we return to the book of Exodus as we've been going through for some time. And we come to the end of the book of the covenant. And as with any biblical book, what we notice is that the book can be divided into sections. And this is one of the most important aspects of studying a book is to figure out the sections uh, where the different parts of the text divide and how they all fit together, uh, essential to understanding uh, the, the intent of the author, which is ultimately the goal of any Bible study, is to come away understanding what is the intent of the author. And one of the main ways we do that is by determining the structure. And so as we go through a book, like Exodus, for example, we have these different patches these different sections within the narrative as a whole. And we have been for some time in the book of the covenant, uh, the legal section. So for the last several months, we've been discussing God's law. The law that he gave <coughs> to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. This is the Mosaic covenant. This is uh, the law that Paul says in Romans 7, we can't ever forget, uh, that Paul says is holy, it's righteous, it's true. God's law is Perfect, And we get it here in the book of Exodus. And this material on the law began with the Ten Commandments back in chapter 20. And then it moved to the book of the covenant in chapters 21 to 23. So we've been here for a good while. I went back, I think we started the Ten Commandments in March. And so we took a commandment each week. And after we got to the end of the Ten Commandments, immediately the text goes into this book of the covenant which is an explication of some of the details of the Ten Commandments, or the explication of the details of the Ten Commandments. We get the outworking of the Ten Commandments in the daily covenantal life of Israel. So far, we've talked about different categories of laws. And I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope it's been practical just to see how does God define justice, right? Justice is perverted and uh, societies and fallen societies in fallen legal systems. Uh, there are, there's more or less justice that is achieved. There are more just societies and less just societies. But what we're seeing when we come to this is God's perfect justice. The outworking of these commands, these rules, these precepts, these judgments as they're called, is God's perfect justice in the world. This is how God has defined justice. So we've seen uh, different categories of laws, protection of the vulnerable, capital offenses, personal injury, 
theft and property damage, being set apart to God among the nations, compassion towards those who could be taken advantage of. We talked about the poor and the orphan and the widow and the, <coughs> the alien or sojourner in the land. <clears throat> Justice for all people, not siding with the majority, not siding with the rich, not siding with the poor, but justice for all. We talked about that, that image of justice as blind. And by the way, we recognize that Western civilization is built on the Bible. That when you go back and you look at uh, all of the ways that God has blessed Western civilization, we recall that much of it is built upon the revelation that we have, especially as it has come over the last 2,000 years, built on the revelation that we have in the Bible. So justice for all people, love for enemies, and holy days and festivals. We talked about a couple of weeks ago a holy calendar. A holy calendar for a holy people that there would be the observance of certain days and certain festivals as the people express their devotion to Yahweh, not to the gods of the nations. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is putting the covenant stipulations <coughs> in front of his people. That's what we have. And it reminds us that God wants a relationship with his people. That's what's going on in the covenant. In all of these laws, we see God putting forth the stipulations of the relationship between himself and his people. And this is the, these are the stipulations for that relationship after the fall. We recognize that God's people are fallen. And God is telling them, this is how entering into covenant with me is to look. If you are to be people of the holy God, this is what it means to live that out and confess that, to profess that as God's holy people. This is what it looks like to know him and to walk with him. And I want to just draw out one thing here that we need to consider, <coughs> and that is that God never leaves his people in the dark. When we come to the law the Ten Commandments and the Covenant Code as we're coming today to the end of it, we just need to note that God never leaves his people in the dark. You, you would listen to some Christians and you would think that God's just sort of hiding himself and his purposes and his will in some dark a closet or in some attic and, and we're just sort of pining after, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm just trying to find God's will. And often it is the case that we don't know which job to take or we don't know where to travel or we don't know which house to buy. All these little decisions. But what we need to understand is that all of those little decisions are built upon and flow out of the principles which God has so clearly given us in his word. He doesn't keep us in the dark. God never leaves his people in the dark. He cares about fires taking off on someone else's land or property that is borrowed or how it is that people are to treat one another. All of the facets of life God cares about and God speaks to ultimately in his word. Today, we come to the end of this section, and the title for the sermon is A Settled Nation. You'll see that up here <coughs> on the screen, A Settled Nation. All along, these laws that we've been reading, Ten Commandments and everything after that, 
these laws have been anticipating Israel's settlement in the land of Canaan as a nation. Leaning into, looking forward to the conquest. The exodus leans into the conquest, the settlement of the people in Canaan. Moses anticipates Joshua. God has brought them out of Egypt and he will bring them into the land. This is a package deal. This was part of the promise going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. When God appeared to Abram in the land of Mesopotamia and he called him to go to a land, he said, go to a land and I will show you what land. And then when Abram passed through the land and as he was worshiping the Lord, calling on the Lord, this is what God says to him. In Genesis 12, verse 7, going all the way back to Genesis 12. (coughs) Then the Lord (coughs) appeared to (coughs) Abram, excuse me. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So all the while that Abram whose name is changed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, all the while as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going through the land, they are recognizing that this land is theirs by inheritance, that God has given them this land. He has promised this land. And God's promises are certain. They can never be undone. And what we're seeing with the Israelites, as they anticipate the conquest, is that the fulfillment of these promises are coming to pass. But it goes all the way back to the patriarchs, and we see that it goes all the way back to God's commissioning of Moses. Remember the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. It says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry Because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land, and here it is, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had intended to take his people from the beginning out of one place and put them in another. Christ has come and rescued us out of this present evil age, out of darkness, and he has brought us into life in the spirit as a guarantee of life forever with him in glory. The exodus and the conquest is a picture of our own salvation. God has not just saved us out of something to leave us hanging. He has saved us out of something and into something else. Out of sin, death, and hell and into the eternal dwelling with the Lord. So, this anticipation of being settled in the land has been present all along. But today, as the Lord concludes the book of the covenant... He brings this settlement in Canaan clearly into view. So all along the way, as these laws have been unfolding, God is preparing his people to live justly, righteously, and holy in the land. But now, as we come to the end of the book of the covenant, it becomes clearer what God is going to do. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. (coughs) 
<clears throat> Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33. This is the word of God. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. <clears throat> Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, <coughs> lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare or a trap to you. You can go ahead and be seated. <coughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask, asking him for his grace. As we come to this time of instruction, that he would give us his grace to understand his word that he would apply it to each of our hearts in the way that only he can do, incisively to the heart. You know, it, it always, it, it's amazing when you talk with people, uh, people when you're interacting with folks after a sermon or maybe down, down the line a little bit the week after, when people come up and, and talk to you about it. Uh, sometimes people will, will say, you know, this, this right here really, really hit me or really struck me. And I, and I think to myself sometimes, well, you know, I... That was kind of a side note, and I just kind of moved on past that. But it's just amazing to me the way that God very specifically, like a surgeon, applies his word to his people. And he does it in ways that are beyond us. So we're going to ask that he would do that this morning. He would minister to all of us as we sit under his word. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be here. We thank you for your kindness to us, God. Uh, we thank you that... You have given us one another uh, as we think about those who've covenanted, covenanted together here as members of Four Corners Church and uh, we've pledged our lives to one another and as we consider what's going to happen at the end of the service with another membership pledge, Lord, we're just grateful that you gave birth to this local church and that you have ministered to all of us in various ways, in manifold ways, 
through this local body of Christ. God, we praise you. And we ask this morning as we come to your word that you would speak into each of our hearts, Lord. That none of us would be deadheaded as we uh, gather this morning. That we would not be thinking about other things. But, Father, that you would hold our attention. That you would hold our minds here on what you have to say to us, your people. Father, any among us this morning who is unconverted, whether they be a child or an adult, we pray for your mercy in saving them. God, you alone can save. None of us can save ourselves, and none of us can save another person. But Lord, you are the great redeeming God. And so we pray that you would graciously speak light into the darkness, that you would graciously transfer from death and darkness to life and light this morning. God, we praise you that you do save and that you have come in the person of your Son for that very purpose, to save as Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord, has redeemed us by his blood. We praise you for him and we pray that all of us, all of our eyes would be fixed on him and that we would behold him in his glory as we come to his word this morning. We love you, Father, and thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage for this morning is pretty straightforward. Yahweh instructs his people on what will be expected of them as they enter into the land, and he gives promises of what he will do if they obey. So there's a conditional nature here as you read through (coughs) this passage and as God is giving his law to his people. So that leads us to two points this morning. This, If you want to write these down, this is what we'll be going through, just two. So, very simply, the obligations of Israel and the blessings of Yahweh. So, the obligations of Israel, verses 20 to 25, the first part of it. And then verses 32 to 33, we'll drop down and include that. And then the blessings of Yahweh, verses 25b to 31. And so, we'll look at each of those. So, let's look first at the obligations of Israel. And for that, we're going to look at verses 20 to 22. So let's read that again. Behold, I send an angel before you. To, by the way, we're just going to look first at 20 to 22. We're going to get the rest of the verses here in a moment. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. For he will not pardon your transgression. For not my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary (coughs) to your adversaries. Here God says that he will send an angel or a messenger. In Hebrew, the word is just a messenger. Now, this is also the word for angelic beings. We'll talk about that in a moment, who this is, but it really means messenger, to guard Israel and bring them into the land. And I think we are meant to see this angel as the angel of the Lord. He's not called here the angel of the Lord, but I think we are meant to understand this figure as the angel of the Lord, the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, chapter 3, verse 2, and the one who shielded 
<coughs> Israel from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. You'll remember that the angel of the Lord goes back behind the Israelites and shields them from the Egyptians. We read that in chapter 14, verse 19. He is called, in verse 23, my angel. So although it doesn't say the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, he is called, in verse 23, my angel. (coughs) And his speech here is interchangeable with God's speech. And we see that in verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. So we see God speaking is interchangeable with the angel of the Lord Speaking, And we get that, for example, when uh, Abraham takes Isaac up onto the mountain uh, to sacrifice him. And God says, stop, stop, stop. We get this interchange between the Lord and the angel of the Lord. <coughs> in, verse, in verse 21, the Lord says, my name is in him. And then in the same verse, this angel is depicted as one who has the authority to forgive sins. So it says there, he will not pardon your transgression. And we know from the New Testament that as Jesus is coming through and he is showing his authority, his authority over sickness, his authority over demons, <coughs> and even his authority to forgive sins, he is equating himself with God. And the religious leaders recognize that. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, hello. Hint, hint. I am God is what is going on there. But we see here that this particular figure has the authority to forgive sins. Also, in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, it is the angel of the Lord who says this, as Kyle read to us earlier, I brought you, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Hold on a second. I thought it was the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt. I thought it was the Lord who brought them into the land. I thought it was the Lord who swore to give this land to their fathers. Well, it was. It was. As we've talked about before, the angel of the Lord is depicted as God himself. And yet, somehow, (coughs) distinct. So the angel of the Lord is God, and yet in some way, he is distinct from God. This is not a created being, but God himself, creator, not created. And so this has led interpreters for many centuries to identify the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. This is one of the most fascinating topics for me. I love this topic as you go through and study scripture and you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. But it has led many to identify the angel of the Lord with the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, the messenger of Yahweh, Yahweh himself. And it's interesting how you get this, he is God and yet distinct from God, you get this same sort of language in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, distinction, And the word was God. Identification. Equality. So we see here an anticipation of the Trinity. And when Jesus comes on the scene and the preaching of the gospel comes on the scene, it's not as though the gospel just sort of falls into this empty vacuum and that the Jews are expected to believe something entirely 
off the wall entirely from left field. God had been preparing his people, even from the beginning of Genesis, as these Pharisees and Sadducees, they're really carefully, these scribes, really carefully reading scripture. They would see in the very opening of the book of Genesis, we get God and his spirit and his word, and then let us make man in our image. And then we have the spirit of God, we have the messenger of Yahweh, and we have Yahweh. It's all there. It's all beautifully there as the pages of Scripture are unfolding. And then in the New Testament with the coming of Christ, we get it made abundantly clear. (coughs) So that is the angel of (coughs) the Lord. And the mandate (coughs) or obligation for Israel is obedience. That's what we find here. The people must listen to this messenger. They must listen to the Lord, to Yahweh. Look at all of the verbs here. By the way, anytime you're reading the Bible, we're going to have a, a men's retreat, uh, a day retreat in September. We're going to talk about how to, how to read the Bible, approaching the Bible. That's going to be the big theme. And this is just another practical thing that we do when we read the Bible. I talked about structure earlier and the need to put the pieces together and to see the connectives between those chunks and how it all fits together with the purpose of saying what is the author's intention as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, another way that we come to the Bible is we recognize that the verbs are so important. There are main verbs and then subordinate verbs and so forth. We need to look always at the verbs. What is the action that is taking place? And the verbs in this portion are overwhelming and unified. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel. Carefully obey his voice. Do all that I say. Do you see that? That's what God expects of his people. That's the obligation (coughs) here that is put upon the people. Attentiveness, readiness, and willingness. Listen, it's not just submission to God when he yells in our ear, right? God shouldn't have to yell, right? We say this to our kids. Mommy and daddy should not have to raise our voices, right? We say that. Daddy should not, I should, daddy should not have to call you multiple times. Daddy should not have to say this loudly. I should be able to say this in just a very calm voice, and you, you heed, right? Heed my word. We tell that to our children, and the same is true of God. It's not just that God's booming from heaven, and finally, after 20 booms, we do what he says, Right? But it is readiness. It is attentiveness. It is God calling Abram's name, Abraham's name in Genesis 22. And says, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Always keeping our hearts ready to hear the word of the Lord. It should be like a, a drop from a medicine dropper. The word of the Lord, rather than a boom, should simply be like a medicine dropper. When it falls onto our hearts, we feel it because of our sensitivity to our King, to our Lord. Attentiveness, readiness, willingness as we hear his voice. The most fundamental thing for God's people to do is to listen to him. Let me say this. The most fundamental thing is to listen to him. 
Loving him, trusting him, serving him. These are, this is language we use, rightly so. This comes all out of the Bible. We are to love God. We are to trust God with all the things in life. Be anxious for nothing. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God. The peace of God will guard us. We are to trust him, to love him, and to serve him. But let me say this to us. None of that will happen if we don't first listen. Right? All of that comes out of listening. And if you try to do any of those things without listening to him, you'll just boom, fall into false teaching. You'll fall into self-righteousness. You'll fall into pride. You'll fall into Matthew 6, praying before men to be seen by them, giving to be seen. All the things we do religiously speaking, all of our acts of piety, if they don't begin with listening to God, they crash and burn. All of our supposed trust will be trust in the false things. All of our love will really be love of self. And all of our service will be for our own glory. We must first listen to the Lord. And he speaks to us in his word. Oh, we can hear from God any moment of the day. We don't have to wait on some sort of vision. We're not waiting on something to happen that, that, where the signs all fit together. Amazing how people are just looking for signs just trying to pick up breadcrumbs like Hansel and Gretel in the middle of the forest, trying to just piece together breadcrumbs to figure out God's perfect will. God speaks now through the Bible. So if you're looking for breadcrumbs, that's foolishness. Read the Bible. Read God's word. Saturate your heart and your mind with the Bible and all the little paths of life, the trunk the branches, the limbs and the leaves, and all the little lines in the leaves will become clearer and clearer and clearer. We have to first listen before we can do anything. And that's what God puts on his people here, the importance of listening. Now let's look at the second part of this obligation, verses 23 to 25a, and then we'll drop down to verses 32 to 33. So we're still under the obligations of Israel, but we're looking at the second part of <coughs> excuse me, this obligation. <coughs> excuse me. So here we go, verses 23 and following. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God. Verses 32 to 33. Now we drop down there. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So there is a real danger <clears throat> that when the people enter Canaan, they will adopt the practices of the Canaanites. Oh, right now, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in the middle of nowhere. 
There are no influences on them right now. It's just all Israel. It's like a youth camp. It's just all God. Just all praise. Although I'm not naive about how youth camps can go all over the place. But in theory, in theory, it is like a youth camp. Everybody there just fired up about God. Everything about God. God speaking. Amazing things happening. Then you got to go home. Then you've got to go into Canaan. Then you have to go into the world. Well, there is a real danger that when they do so, they will bow down to and serve the gods of Canaan. And they will, they will begin to adopt the practices of the Canaanites. And we've talked about things like sorcery and bestiality and even the ways... <coughs> That things like sorcery and bestiality and child sacrifice and so on and so forth are linked up with the religious system of the Canaanites. They're not just doing these things for fun. These things are linked up in the worship of false gods. Demons. It is demons who encourage that kind of debauchery. That is what the Israelites will encounter And this adopting of their ways must not be the case for God's holy people. So the Canaanites are to be removed. They are to be removed as judgment for their sin. We read that in Genesis 15. But they are also to be removed so that they they will not create a stumbling block for the Israelites in the land. (coughs) And all of their idols (coughs) and pillars or religious structures are to be smashed to pieces. The Israelites are not to walk up on some pillar or some little deity statue, some pillar erected to a false god or some little deity statue, and pause for a moment and ponder. They're not to walk up to that and say, wow, that's a really cool artifact of Canaanite worship. So that we recognize, of course, we're removed from that many years. It's a different context. But they are to walk up to that and smash it to the ground. They are to turn it into little bits of dust, gone, out of their face. God will blot out the Canaanites and he will establish his holy people. When the angel of the Lord brings Israel into the land, they are to serve the Lord alone, no one else. Peace treaties or covenants with the people will only result in idolatrous worship. It will trap Israel with a snare so that they go after the gods of Canaan. Uh, Years ago, I watched a show on uh, people in Alaska, and one of the things that uh, that it showed was these people who were out trapping different kinds of animals. These guys just living out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness, and they were, they were trappers. And it was very interesting to see the different ways that they would trap wild animals there to eat or for fur or whatever else. Well, the image is very much the same here, that by going into Canaan, leaving the people there, leaving the religious structures there, it becomes a trap. It becomes a snare so that everywhere the Israelites look, there is the potential for them falling into the ditch of false worship. (coughs) And of course, this is what ended up happening. We read that earlier as we came to Judges 2. I just want to quickly recap a few of those verses. Judges 2, 11 to 13. It's really so appalling. We read through passages like this too quickly. 
And if you've grown up in church, you know. Yeah, I mean, the Israelites, they worship false gods. They worship Baal, and they did all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's like idolatry, idolatry. I heard that word so many times as a kid growing up. Uh, that the, the Israelites, the children of Israel, fell into idolatry. It's just very commonplace. Like, that's what happened, you know. Uh, but when you read this in the light of biblical history, it, it, it should bring us to a state of just, oh, really? After what God did for them? After what happened? After their rescue and the land he prepared and his faithfulness to the promises? All of that? We read this. <coughs> And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And they served the Baals. They served the fertility God of the Canaanites. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods. And as we'll read in Hosea, as we read in Hosea, uh, they committed adultery against the Lord. They traded in the Lord for someone else, for many others. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. Even Solomon does the same. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. All the gods and goddesses of the Canaanites just brought on in for Israel's praise. Not the God who had parted the sea for them to walk through on dry ground. The God who had fed them every day in the wilderness and who had given them enough on the sixth day so that they could rest on the seventh. No, not this God. Just the made-up gods of the Canaanites. False, fake, phony. And how we chase after the same in our world today, in our little Canaan. All these false gods dangling before our eyes and we bite. We bring them on into our home. We bring them on into our hearts. Forgetting all that the Lord our God has done for us. So let's take a step back from these obligations and ask what are some of the implications for us of all this. We see these obligations uh, for the Israelites. We're thinking about the Mosaic Covenant, so we're recognizing that. Well, what are we to take from this as we're sitting here this morning, Christians, in the 21st century? What do we do with these obligations? Well, I think first, here we get a summary of godliness. This is a summary of godliness. Now, we know that a summary of godliness ultimately is the whole law. But what we're getting at the end here is God is boiling it all down for his people. He's boiling everything, the Ten Commandments that he's given to them. He's boiling down the Book of the Covenant because this is the capstone of it. This is the end of it. He's boiling it all down, giving a summary of godliness. And I think we can summarize godliness in this way. Glued to the word, separate from the world. That's godliness. Glued to the word, separate from the world. That takes in these two parts of the obligations, the obedience to the voice, and you saw the concentration of the verbs there. 
And then also this refraining from going after the gods of the nations. The gods of the peoples. Glued to the word, separate from the world. It struck me as I was thinking about this, how parallel this is to Psalm 1. I know Trey brought up Psalm 1 last week. Psalm 1 is just amazing. I think everyone should memorize that psalm. It's incredible. But at the very beginning of Psalm 1, you get this same structure. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel. So he's defined as what he doesn't do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers. So he's negatively defined in terms of his separation. He's separated from sin. There's a path going down the road that's filled with sin, filled with disobedience to God, filled with false worship. He refrains from those things. The man who knows God, who is blessed by the Lord. We know this is ultimately Christ, and he's the only one who's done it perfectly. But it applies to all of God's people. Then he's defined as what he does. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on it day and night. Defined as what he is not. Defined as what he does not do. Defined in terms of the fact that he does not go after the gods of this world. And then defined in terms of his readiness to hear from God. He loves God's word. If you don't love God's word, you don't love God. Right? There's no divorce there. I've heard people say before, oh, this is bibliolatry. That's just foolishness. God speaks And to know God is to know his word. To relate to God is to relate to his word. To love God is to love his word. To trust God is to trust his word. Joined inextricably together. We don't worship a physical book. We worship the God who speaks. And we obey his voice. We love his voice. Abba, I hear father. I hear my father speaking. That's the heart of a Christian. Delight, thought, and time. We think on his word. We don't waste our moments in the car. We don't waste our moments just sitting around on our phones. We don't waste our moments in the shower. We don't waste any moments. We are in thought about God, meditating on his word day and night, doing whatever it takes to keep the mind glued on God, his word. And our time. How much time the Lord gives us and how much time we waste. Our problem is not a time problem. It is a foolishness problem. That's the issue with the human heart. God gives us ample time to be in his word, to meditate on his truth. And as I thought about this separate from the world, as I thought about the Psalm 1 person. And as I thought about the Israelites here refraining from the gods of Canaan, (coughs) I thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. I've been reading Daniel lately. I've been kind of deep in that, uh, going through. We're talking about eschatology. A, A brother here and I are working through some eschatology, and I've been really reading carefully the book of Daniel, and it just amazes me how much of an illustration Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel are. 
for this very point. Everyone in the kingdom stands. I mean, bows. Everyone in the kingdom bows to this golden image that is put up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow. That's the picture of a Christian at work. That's the picture of a Christian among your neighbors. That's the picture of a Christian wherever he or she goes. While everyone else bows down to the gods of this world, we stand. And Daniel, trapped, caught in a trap by malicious accusers. <coughs> if anyone prays to any god or calls out to any god other than Nebuchadnezzar, then they will be thrown to the lions. What does it say? Daniel goes back to his room. He points his face toward Jerusalem. He bows and he prays. Just as he had always done. His piety, his devotion, his commitment, his loyalty never wavered, even in the face of great danger. Because this is who he was. Separate from the world. So we get in this passage, I think, a summary of godliness glued to the word separate from the world. Second, God's obligations always come in the context of his grace. God doesn't just shoot out commands to his people. He doesn't just start blasting his people with obligations or requirements or mandates or laws or precepts or anything like that. God always brings these out in the context of grace. So look at verse 20. <coughs> the very beginning of all this. Behold, I send an angel before you. He didn't say, if you do these things, I will send an angel before you. He says, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm, period. I, I know you're going to make a mess of this. I know you're going to go after the Baals and the Ashtaroth. I'm still sending an angel. Grace. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. God did the preparing in the past. He's bringing them in, in the present. And he will bring them in and guard them. This is God's presence, his protection, and his preparation, irrespective of anything they do. That's what we have in Christ. We have these, these promises, this grace that God is with us when we sin, we confess our sins. God doesn't leave us. He's still with us. And he doesn't stop protecting us. And he certainly has not stopped preparing a place for us. As John 14, 1 to 3 says that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. So that where he is, we will be also. So we see that God's obligations always come in the context of his grace. And this is exactly what we found with the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 2, right before God starts getting into the you shalls and you shall nots, or starts getting into the you shall nots, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I have saved you. Now here's what I want you to do. I've saved you. I brought you out. Now here's what I want you to do. God has expectations for us. Some people talk about God's grace in the most flippant, unbiblical, worldly, licentious way. As though God expects nothing of us. 
as though God expects us to do nothing. God places on us many demands, many obligations, many expectations, and he says to us, go and do. Just as he told the people through Christ in the New Testament, go and sin no more. Any notion of grace that does not propel us forward towards holiness, towards sinning no more, towards obeying God's commands and loving his commands is no grace at all. It's just worldly religion. It's something altogether different than biblical Christianity. God places obligations on his people. He empowers them to live them out. And he always bathes them in his grace. And he promises that one day we will rest fully in the new heaven and the new earth. We will rest with Christ ultimately. We will be perfect with him. Third, Christ has always been there. Let me say that again. Christ has always been there. Whether pre-incarnate or incarnate, he's there in every chapter of the Bible. It's not like the whole Christ thing, just sort of New Testament. You just got to go to the New Testament to see Christ. Christ is everywhere in the Bible. Our devotion to Christ is devotion to the God of Israel and the creator of Genesis 1. And we see that with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord reminds us that Christ saved Israel from, from Egypt. That Christ led Israel through the wilderness. That Christ appeared to Joshua as a mighty warrior and Christ led the Israelites into Canaan. And Christ was there all along. We see him coming to Samson's parents. We see him all throughout. Christ was always there. And he is there now. Every chapter of our lives, every chapter of human history, Christ is present, whether pre-incarnate or incarnate. As Christians, we are explicitly Trinitarian people. The Trinity is not some little side doctrine that is up for grabs. You can't love Jesus and not love the Trinity. You can't serve Jesus and not say, I confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jehovah's Witnesses, not Christians. Mormons, not Christians. They reject the triune God, central to our faith. All three persons at work throughout human history, all three persons at work throughout salvation, and all three persons confessed as we confess one God. Fourth, reading this passage and knowing what Israel went on to do causes us to praise God for the new covenant. Here's God giving his people all the verbal avalanche of promises and affirmation that could possibly exist. They have seen God's magnificent glory. They've watched God do incredible things. Their children will be told, their children's children, and so on and so forth, and yet they still fell. They still grumbled just days. I mean, days. We do the same thing, right? God gives us a provision, 
whoa, Lord, that was so from you. I mean, it just came out of nowhere. We, we were hurting for this and we needed this and it just dropped in our lap. Give it a few days. Give it a few days. We forget all about that. And we murmur and grumble about whatever is right in front of us. Well, how much we saw that with the Israelites. And it causes us to praise God for the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Isn't it amazing as you're a Christian here this morning to think this? God has put his law in my heart. That's something we just don't, we don't really take that seriously. What a, what a blessing that God has put his law in our heart. He's inscribed it in our being so that we delight in the law of the Lord in our inner being, as Paul says in Romans 7. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what happens, the truth is that deep down in our souls, we delight in the law of the Lord in our inner being. Why? Because of the new covenant through Christ's blood applied by the Spirit. And then Jeremiah 32, 40, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Why do you fear God? Why, why do you want to serve God? Because God has put the fear of him in you. That's his grace. He has put a, a worship of him in your soul and made it to where you want him to be glorified and you want to please him. And the thought of displeasing him is worse than anything else. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's something God puts in the heart through the new covenant. So as we read these obligations and we see Israel's history, we're just praising God this morning for the new covenant through the blood of Christ, which we'll celebrate in a moment as we come to the Lord's Supper. So now we come to the second point, the blessings of Yahweh. And you may at this point say, man, this is pretty imbalanced. We don't have very long to cover um, the blessings of Yahweh. But um, what I want you to see, we're going to go through this pretty quickly because it is pretty straightforward. And you'll see that in a moment. So look at verses 25b to 31. <coughs> you shall serve the Lord your God. And here we go. So jump on the train, the blessing train. And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little <coughs> by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitant, inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Here, God lays out a series of blessings. These are promises to Israel. This is what the Lord will do for them if they obey his voice and if they do not go after the gods of Canaan. Now, the blessings mentioned here are what you would expect. So just by way of capturing all of them, we have food and water, health, fertility, Longevity, protection, habitation, increase, and victory. All of these things are here just sort of piled up together as the blessings which the Lord 
will give. It is Deuteronomy 28 in many form. So when you get to the end of the Pentateuch, when you get to the end of the first five books, the books of Moses, you will come to, excuse me, the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. And this is the many form of the blessings which we find there in a more expanded form in Deuteronomy 28. And by the way, you might be wondering where the curses are. And the curses are simply abbreviated with the words in verse 21. He will not pardon your transgressions. In other words, he will punish you if you do not listen, if you do not obey him. And that's exactly what we find throughout the history of Israel all the way up to the exile and beyond. And, of course, we recognize that also is the case even today as we see in Romans 9 through 11, the hardening of Israel as they have rejected their Christ, as they have killed their own Christ. We see the the hardening that God is doing throughout the time of the Gentiles as the Gentiles are coming in. So we get here in many form the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. Not only will God give them the land by driving out their enemies, but he will do it carefully so as to prepare the land for their habitation. He will even use pests. And you might be reading this and think, that's kind of strange. We're talking about warfare and conquest, and we're talking about all these things, and we've seen the Red Sea you know, part, and now we've got hornets, we've got these, these pests. But God is going to utilize these pests to drive the people out slowly so that the cities are not left in ruins and overcome by dangerous wild animals. So God is not just just bashing all the people out and saying, here, Israel, have the land. But he's doing this methodically. He's doing this carefully so that the people don't just get something in ruins that they got to then spend years and years rebuilding, but they get it ready to go. We all love it when we get something in the mail or buy something. It's just ready to go. And then how terrible it can be when it's, totally not ready to go, and it takes 410 steps to put together or something like that. And you're calling numbers, people don't answer the phone, you can't understand what they're saying, it's just a disaster. So the the land is going to be ready-made for the people. They're going to be able to walk in and simply continue, pick up where the Canaanites left off. God will give them the borders that he had promised to Abraham But we need to note that this does not happen until David. These borders, the borders of the land, as mentioned here, because of Israel's sin, does not happen until the time of David, and then only briefly in the time of David and Solomon. (coughs) God will be their victor. Israel's conquest of the land will be because of him. Back in verse 22, we read, If you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And then here in verse 27, I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And then the end of verse 31, we read the same thing. I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. So God will give his people victory. He will fight the battles for them, just as we see with Jericho, he will be the conquering king. So as we finish up this morning, what are the implications of these blessings for us? We've talked a little bit about the obligations. What are the implications of these blessings for us? Well, here we are presented with the classic two ways. Uh, This is a very common philosophical idea. 
the two ways. And it is a very common biblical idea as well. There are two ways. There is the way of life and the way of death. There is the way of curses and the way of blessings. To not be in Christ, listen to me this morning if you're here and you're not a Christian. To not be in Christ is to go the way of death. You, you might feel great right now. Things might be going really well for you. Your health's good. You feel strong. Making great money. You love your prospects for the future. You don't know Christ. You're on the way to death. All of this is just superficial glitter. The truth of it. The depth of it. The reality of it. If you don't know Christ, whether you're 7, 8, 9, or 99, if you don't know Christ, you're on the way of death, the way of curses. To be in Christ, by contrast, is to be blessed. It is to be blessed by God. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. <clears throat> if you are a Christian this morning, you are blessed. You are already blessed. You don't need anyone to say, bless you. You are blessed in Christ. In fact, you have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's locked in him. It's secure in him. This cannot be broken into. It cannot be in any way spoiled or taken away. And we see this with the Sermon on the Mount as we think about the Sermon on the Mount as the Beatitudes for the citizens of the kingdom. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. We are blessed in Christ. But let's think about life in Christ. We all know that we make choices every single day, right? We're in Christ, we're blessed. But we make choices every single day. God is sovereign, but we are also responsible for our choices. May no reformed theology, may no understanding of God's sovereignty erase for us or shatter for us the importance of our willful choices, which matter. We make choices Every day. So let me ask you, as a Christian who is blessed in Christ, what are you doing with your blessed life? What about your choices? Are you walking the way of obedience or the way of disobedience? In Christ, yes, but are you walking in the way of disobedience? Are you doing all the things that Paul says not to do in Romans 6? In other words, are you practically walking in the way of God's blessings or in the way of God's cursing? Functionally. Hear this. God blesses obedience and fidelity and he curses disobedience and idolatry. Period. This is a principle from Scripture. God blesses our obedience. You can't run from it. You can't explain it away. You can't use some truncated understanding of the gospel 
to omit it? This is not the way of God's blessing. The way of disobedience and idolatry will not lead to God's blessings. And let me say this to us. Lest we think that God's blessing means all the things that the prosperity gospel says that it means. New this, new that, shiny this, big this, weighty account, no sickness, no coughs, no sneezing, no whatever. Now, it's a caricature what I'm saying there, but the point is that we're not talking about that. God's blessing is mysterious. That's the last thing I'm going to say this morning. God's blessing is mysterious. And sometimes God blesses us with trials to grow our faith. Imagine this. What if by walking in disobedience, God actually doesn't bless you with a trial? You say, hold on a second, my mind just exploded. I don't understand that. What if, what if God's will for you in obedience is that you go through trials by which your rest and peace and joy in Christ explodes. And because you are disobeying God, because you're disobeying Christ, you're continuing to stray and err and go your own way. All those blessings are foregone. That peace in Christ, that rest in Christ, that joy in Christ, that usefulness in Christ, our choices matter. And there are two ways. Even for the Christian, there are two ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the new covenant. And we thank you now as we come forward to partake of the Lord's Supper that you give us this sign of the covenant in the blood of Christ. We praise you, Lord, for your grace. And we ask that our hearts would rejoice as we partake. In Jesus' name, amen.